This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the F- Future for Investors. The sixth edition of Stocks for the Long Run is now out and available wherever books are sold, so get a copy. Uh, please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. The views or guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're back here live at Wharton's campus. I've got a guest in the studio with me, John Davi of Astoria Portfolio Advisors. John, welcome back to Wharton. Thanks for being here in person. Great to be here. Thank you. Um, we're going to get the professor's comments to kick off the show. Professor, uh, we didn't have a year-end show, so curious how you're reacting to all the data that came out at the end of last year and obviously a, a key jobs report. We've got bonds, uh, yields falling, stocks up. How, how are you reacting to this first employment report? Yes, and Happy New Year to, to all of you. Yeah, I mean... Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of the exciting stuff really uh, uh, did happen uh, really today. Um, um, and actually, the employment report surprised me. I, I thought we would see more pressure on wages and a little bit of a bigger slowdown on payrolls. Uh, the job market appears very strong. I mean, the ADP number that came out on a Wednesday, but more importantly, the um, jobless claims number on Thursday showed a big drop, um, uh, uh, and uh, it shows strength in the market, and it, and that was confirmed today with with the non-farm payrolls. Now, let, let me also mention with that, and I mentioned this last month, we did have another one tenth of an hour downtick in uh, average weekly hours of employees. Um, and it's now below the average level uh, that we had pre-pandemic. Two consecutive one-tenths of a percent is very rare. Uh, it actually is usually associated with a recession. I'm not calling a recession. <laughs> I'm just saying that uh, uh, even though we're hiring more workers, um, when, you, when, when they work less, it's, uh, it shows a little bit less pressure uh, on that labor uh, market. Nonetheless, the job the jobless rate fell back down to the 6.5 percent low level that it has matched before, and the U6 number, which is the broad measure of unemployment, actually dropped to six, also 6.5 percent. The other was 3.5, 6.5 percent, which is an all-time low. It's a thir- it doesn't have it has a 30-year series, um, includes discouraged workers, etc., and so on. That's an all-time low for um, the uh, U6. Uh, unemployment rate. Um, However, what probably was a more shocking number today, and that's rarely the case, uh, was the ISM services number. Not usually opens a lot of eyes, but that was expected to be 55 down from 56 and a half, and it came in at 49.6. That's one of the biggest misses ever on the downside. Now, the uh, manufacturing ISM, which has a longer and um, more maybe respected pedigree, it's easier to measure, uh, has been uh, below 50, which is in contraction territory for quite a long time. So in a way, uh, services seem to be holding up, holding up, holding up, but finally moving down. By the way, uh, on the price index for both the manufacturing, which fell down into the 30s, and uh, the price index on the service orders, which also came in 67.6, that's mainly because services are mostly um, geared to wages, which are still rising, was still a well below expectations. So um, uh, on the price front, is everything is very good. Let me also mention, uh, yeah, uh, why the market rallied on, a, on, on the payroll was hourly earnings not only came in below expectation, but were revised down sharply for previous months. Uh, j- just to give you the the year-over-year figure, 
uh, you know, which I warn people is not a very current figure, but it's something the Fed uses, uh, was expected to be 5.0% down from 5.1. It fell to 4.6. I have never seen that miss. Um, and I'd have to go back into my archives to find a miss of year-over-year earnings expectations of that magnitude. That's what cheered the market. Oh, my goodness. Wage pressures aren't as strong as before. We may remember that when the November came out uh, on the first week of December and it came in way high, which we now know was nowhere near as high as they said, the market crashed. Uh, on expectation, oh, the Fed is going to become extremely uh, aggressive going forward. Um, bottom line, everything on the price front is is going down. Um, uh, we see what's happening to oil. The natural gas is plummeting like it, it's it's uh, you know down from almost ten dollars a megatherm down to in the, it was four fifty uh, earlier today. I mean that's an incredible decline. Oil is well below the uh, invasion point of uh, Russia into Ukraine. Uh, commodities com- continue to go down. Everything is deflationary in the price price one. Next uh, Thursday, I believe it is, we will get the CPI. Um, uh, and um, expectations are zero overall and three-tenths on the core. I warn you, as I have for six months, the core is way inflated because of the housing figure. If you take that housing figure, which will be positive inflation on that and put actual uh, behavior, what's happening to uh, rentals and house prices, you will get a zero or negative core also. So inflation is basically dead. Um, Something I said three months ago. Um, Now, what does this mean for the Fed? Um, They're going to get the CPI and PPI. They have a February 1st meeting. They will not get another employment report um, uh, before then. Um, the expectation is they'll go 25. They shouldn't. They should stop because of all the tightening that's in, in the system. But the expectation is now 25. If the CPI and PPI, which comes out the following week, both miss um, on the downside, you may get some people say maybe we should stop. If we're going to get some jobless claims or some other real data, um, by the way, factory orders were also very weak, revised downward uh, for uh, October and, and way missed in in um, uh, um, uh, November. Um, uh, if, if we continue to get some of this weak economic data, they may pause February 1st. Don't expect that right now, but February 1st, in my expectation, might be the very last 25 uh, basis point increase, and then they're going to be called to not only halt, but within a month or two, in my expectation, uh, perhaps um, perhaps actually reduce it. The market is rallying on that. The discount rate is well down. I mean, uh, as, as we're speaking right now, the Dow, uh, you know, is up uh, 600 points. You know, the 10-year the, the, the tips um, is down 13 basis points today. I mean, that's a big discount rate drop. Um, it's 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 weird when weak economic data causes the stock market to go up, but um, uh, when when the market feels the Fed is overly tight and the discount rate is the main factor driving stock prices, so yeah, they may worry more about earnings with the with this ter- terribly weak ISM report, factory orders, etc., and so on. But they love the discount rate going down, and um, I think that's. And that's definitely the cause of the rally. Huge rally in the bond market. I think fully justified um, and expectations, uh, you know, very clear that um, uh, the Fed is not going to certainly tighten on the upper end of what it had uh, indicated uh, in the um, uh, September meeting. Great, great opening commentaries, Professor, and, and clearly uh, the bond market's starting to come to your view. You know, the, now the question is like, when the, does will the Fed continue to push back? Uh, I mean, everything you saw in their minutes keeps saying, "Hey, there's no cuts expected this year." You have a view they're going to cut. One of the questions I want to ask, you know, you you had the money supply come out at the end of last year, 
and one of your big theses is coming into the inflation was the money supply was driving inflation. Where do you see the path of how much inflation has come out through the system from the cumulative money supply increase and how much is still left to go? And will you get to elevated inflation over time? Like what, what's your outlook beyond this year of how yeah. inflation will go the next few years? I mean, I think we've eaten up a lot of that. I mean, the money supply since March has declined. Now, it's declined only 2% since March, but it is the longest eight-month period of decline that we've we've had. And, in fact, I, I see articles now that, that the whole uh, the, the money supply might, uh, you know, d- decrease when we get the M2 uh, later this month for December, m- might in, uh, decrease for this year the longest uh, decrease since World War II, and that will grab some hairlines. I think we're probably within, um, if you took true CPIs, which are much higher than, of course, recorded CPIs because of the understatement of what housing inflation was in the past, I would say we're probably within 5 or 6% from absorbing the money supply increase, um, uh, the big burst that we had. So uh, we've we've done by far the lion's share with this two percent decline. Um, uh, you know we're we're getting closer to absorbed it. I think there's still a risk of a recession, and if the Fed, you know, remains stubborn until it it you know he sees your over here recorded inflation decline, that will be too late, and we will have a recession. Don't mean the stock market will crash because discount rates will way go down, and they'll expect that discount rate to go down. It's a powerful, um, you know, that's just as powerful as earnings in terms of of driving that stock price. But we are near. We are. I think we've we've eaten we've eaten up over eighty percent of that increase um, uh, in prices. Uh, and in uh, uh, the, the, the trend movements of uh, money supply growth, real growth, and velocity. Well, very good, Professor. Thank you for some comments to kick the show. I know you're down in Florida for a nice weekend. Uh, have a, have a, uh, a good trip there. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Professor. Uh, John, um, you know, you at Astoria, we've been longtime friends, clients, colleagues uh, uh, from from Wisdom Tree being within uh, some of the Astoria portfolios. And I've known you for probably over a decade from your previous Morgan Stanley days. You do an annual outlook of sort of top top 10 ideas for 2023 that we're going to get into. Um, But you also have your own ETF focused on inflation. So uh, what I I heard you chuckle when the professor said inflation is dead. Uh, Give give me your your sense. How do you respond to the professor's overall outlook, his comments on inflation? What's your thoughts? You know, I so he's had an incredible call. You know, you guys have done a great job on this podcast, kind of navigating people throughout, you know, the inflation cycle. Um, you know, when I go out in the world and I look at prices, I don't see a decline in, you know, inflation. I, I see uh, an elevated steady state for a lot of goods and services. So um, I think in the real world, like the economic data, you know, how he measures it, you know, may show a decline based on how he looks at it. But I can tell you, you know, when you go out and buy eggs, you know, it's seven dollars a carton and it was, you know, three before covid Um, And I just don't see why people are going to decrease their prices when stuff is still being consumed. So our view at Astoria is that we're going to have an, uh, you know, we're going to be persistently above, you know, the, the, the previous cycle for CPI. So we think that it'll be north of, you know, four or five, uh, you know, for this year. So because of that, I think, you know, terminal rates going to stay much higher than what the market anticipates. So, so you're on the opposite side. Siegel thinks we're going to get back towards three on the Fed fund. Like he's in a different world. I, I think the, the single biggest surprise for me in the stock market last year was Powell's. Anytime he had a, an opportunity to be bearish, he was right. So you know, just kept on you know any opportunity, any presser, just kept on saying we're going to keep rates higher, we're going to go higher, we're going to go higher. So I, I think we're going to be talking about CPI much higher, you know, you know, throughout this year. T- tell us a little bit more about your firm, Astoria. What what you what you do for advisors, uh, and, and and obviously we can talk a little bit more about about how you came to launch your own ETF. But talk a little bit about your firm. Sure. So we serve as, um, you know, the industry term is TAMP, Turnkey Asset Manager. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as more of like an outsourced CIO. So we tend to service other RIAs, more independent RIAs. 
where you know they're going to get from us uh, institutional caliber uh, asset allocation strategy through our you know models. Um, but then in addition to that, you know they, we're, they're going to get like full service, you know, kind of uh, back office support, trading, uh, analytics. Um, you know, the, the reality, Jeremy, is that most financial advisors don't want to touch the money. Uh, they're out there doing like estate planning, taxes, and so forth and so forth. So the firm has an institutional background in terms of like if you look at all the members of our firm, you know, we've got multiple CFAs on staff. We've got, you know, in-depth investment committee, PhD. Like, you know, we come from the institutional world, you know, Morgan, Merrill, JP Morgan. So we just have that institutional focus in terms of how we're constructing models um, so we manage about 1.3 billion. We uh, I started the company in 2017. Um, you know, we we offer a range of solutions from you know not just ETF models, but also you know stock portfolios. Um, you know, we tend to kind of blend a lot of uh, customized uh, portfolios together. We have a form of like direct indexing. We have a tax overlay, so we've got a full suite of services. Yeah, talk about that idea of blending individual stocks with ETFs in, in, in custom solutions. You were telling me about that a little bit earlier. That that's sort of very interesting application. Yeah, so I think like, you know, you know, sub one million dollars, it's fine to put clients in, you know, some type of like sixty, forty, ten ticker ETF model based on a risk tolerance. But we're starting to get, you know, advisors with their end clients that are like, you know, twenty million, twenty five million, thirty million. And they're, they're, they want more sizzle, right? They're not going to buy a 10-ticker ETF solution and get a balanced portfolio. Um, so for them, you know, they want alpha in their portfolio and, and they want like some outsized, you know, risk return. So what we'll do is, you know, based on our kind of macroeconomic views, we'll take, we've got a suite of factor-based stock portfolios. So based on our view in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, we'll take sleeves of these factor models stock models and you know whether it's you know high quality stocks you know dividend paying stocks or in some prior years it was growth stocks we'll do let's say you know 60 percent you know stock portfolio and then we'll anchor the the volatility of portfolio via you know either ladder bonds short duration bonds um and that kind of works well for a guy that has you know 25 million that doesn't want to go in private equity private credit liquid alts you know some non-publicly traded stuff so let's talk about your top 10 ETF list. How, uh, how did last year's portfolio do? How long have you talked about the history of this report? Yeah, so just to make a point here, because I, I, it's important to me, you know, about 15 years ago, senior management at, um, you know, one of the larger ETF issuers came to me and said, look, you know, you're at Morgan Stanley, you've got these renowned strategists, economists, you know, marry their macro views via the application of the ETFs, Right. So about 15 years ago, I started this report called, you know, ETF Macro Insights, uh, where we talk about kind of everything in credit, you know, equities, rates, and then opine. And back then, it wasn't trivial to say, okay, here's the ETF you would use to express, you know, a bull steepener trade, right? Um, and then about 10 years ago, I said, you know, all these big Morgan Stanley strategists are doing like their top 10 lists for the year or their views for the years or Baron Wine has like the top 10 surprises. So I wanted to do like a top 10 ETF list. So about 10 years ago, I've been, I've been publishing this report. And we started tracking the performance because, you know, the next year everyone comes back to you and says, like, how did last year's list do? And, you know, as a sell-side analyst, you know, you didn't have anything to kind of hold your hat on. So what I found was a couple things. One is that having a long-term view on, on your, you know, having the long-term, not trading, right, that gave you good a higher probability of doing well as opposed to like intra-year trading. Um, but usually about seven, eight of the ideas are usually in the money. Now, benchmarks is always, you know, this complex thing, like what do you use? Because it's a global macro portfolio. And, you know, the, the 10 ETFs is, is literally back when I first started doing it or now, you know, an aggregation of my best ideas for the next 12 months, Right. And it is how we manage money at Astoria, which is like using stocks and bonds and alternatives and hedging and all sorts of like blended kind of ideas. So usually seven to eight of the ideas are in the money, you know, obviously past performance on indicative future results. Last year was a big year. You know, the basket outperformed, you know, the S&P by uh, 9%. I would say, Jeremy, like we actually have a models and a track record. So people should like, you know, look at our models and you know, our models had an exceptionally good year last year, just given our views on inflation, 
credit rates, you know, tilt away from growth, going into value. So good year for Astoria, good year for the 10 ETFs for last year. We're talking with John Davi, uh, founder of Astoria Portfolio Advisors. John, tell first, we're going to get into some of these themes, and, and uh, where can they find? They want to get access to your whole 10 ETF reports. We're going to talk about themes versus individual tickers here on the show, but where can they get your top 10 for 2023 list? So, so they can go on our website, uh, AstoriaAdvisors.com, or on Twitter, at Astoria Advisors. And they'll, they'll get the full list. So... Uh, Big outperformance for S&P last year, and and interestingly, uh, you were showing me some of your model portfolios. Very similar outperformance in the models as the ETF list. What 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 do you credit? Some what were some of the themes in your portfolios that worked well last year? So if 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 I were in you know Siegel's economics one hundred and one class, I don't know if he teaches. You know, it was a finance and monetary economics. Okay, fine. It was a so they tell, <laughs> they tell you in that class, right, when you're, you know, 18, 19 years old, freshman year, that, like, if you, you know, increase demand and restrict supply, prices will go up. So in 2020, what we started seeing is, you know, and, and I guess, like, living on a trading floor for 18 years before Storia, like, it just teaches you about the left tail risk. In the market, like the, the the sell side is all about managing the left tail. The buy side or the RA world is all about managing the right tail, right? So having that like background and left tail risk, like, and especially working at Merrill in in, in 09, seeing you know we were thankfully acquired, but just seeing um, the risk in the marketplace and how extreme it was in in COVID, 40% right on the S and P, and then. The extreme measures by you know the Fed and governments around the world, like literally giving away free money, um, you know, I saw you know kind of COVID restrict supply chains. I mean, again, I you don't have to be a genius to know that like Apple's not going to rebuild a plant in from and relocate from let's say Asia to I don't know New Mexico and overnight, right? Like I just knew it was going to take years for like these supply chains to get rebuilt. And when you give money away, I mean, I just saw like even my own behavior, like just willing to pay any price for goods and services in like 2020. So we, we thought inflation would rise. You know, obviously the, the velocity of money is something that like, you know, in the late 90s when I first started, they, they taught us at Merrill Lynch and, and the economics. And I was in the quant derivative research group in the late 90s. So, you know, you, you were taught to look at money supply. So and I agreed with you guys, you know, Siegel, like, you know, inflation was going to be a problem. So we started to have this view. So going into last year, we thought, okay, inflation would be a problem. You know, the Fed was going to hike rates. Uh, the Fed's always behind the curve. So we thought they'd be aggressive, but we didn't think that, you know, the convexity of how they increased rates would be ex- as extreme as it was. So last year was all about lowering duration, you know, protecting the portfolio away from, um, you know, large cap growth, you know, tech risk, because those stocks are lo- longer duration in assets, having inflation fighters, and then having liquid alt. So, you know, 20, 2022 was a good year for Astoria. What, where are we on those trades? Uh, if, if you were to say any tactical changes you're making before we get to the full list, what are, is, is, you mentioned you think the Fed's going to stay high longer, it seems like, so the opposite of Siegel there. Where are, you, where are you on that mega cap tech trade? Are they still expensive? You like, what, where, where are they? Well, so we are, you know, shifting our portfolios now only because, not not that we're tactical, but I do think that like, it was so extreme, like the Fed rate hikes, that like I really do am concerned about like the economy, uh, and I'm not like a super bear saying there's going to be a recession and there's going to be some massive left tail risk for the S and P. Like I think like, you know, everyone's preparing for this recession, so it'll be probably more mild. But you know, definitely I think like you've got to lengthen your duration. So you know, if you get like a decline in rates and the long end of the curve, you know. Having long-dated treasuries typically work. If you look at like 2001, 2002, 2008, March 2020, the long end of, of the treasury curve, you know, typically gives you like good recession risks. Um, I, I would personally still stay away from growth. I still think that like you walk in on Jan 2nd, Tesla's down 13%, Apple's down 4 Like I still have like a lot of family friends that are in those stocks. So th- there's still a lot of retail money. So once they're gone, then I think like, you know, growth can have like a new kind of upward cycle, but, you know, value is still pretty cheap. I mean, outside of like S&P index 
type stocks, like, you know, the rest of the market is fairly cheap. So I, th I think it, it behooves you to kind of diversify. And at Astoria, we always believe in diversifying across factors because, you know, the research shows you can get higher up in the first and frontier. So between like lengthening our duration, you know, still staying away from growth, um, you know, we are kind of tweaking some of our inverse correlated alts. Uh, so we are making some changes. So, so, so I, I'll make one last point here. I'm going to turn it over to you. But last year, very high conviction. You know, I think this year I don't have as high conviction. So we prefer to be more kind of neutral in terms of risk versus the benchmark. So last year, you know, we're more like evenly overweight, let's say, you know, stocks, bonds, you know, alts versus our uh, benchmark. Now, we, we mentioned earlier you, you launched uh, an inflation-oriented ETF. Uh, let's talk about the sectors that go into that, where they're positioned versus the market. Uh, and talk about the sectors you think make up a good inflation strategy and, and how you think about those sectors today. Sure. So we're the sub-advisor for the fund and, and Axis Investments, you know, they're the investment advisors. So obviously we, we work together with them to launch the product. But if you think about that 60-40 portfolio, you know, very tech heavy for the for the people that are buying beta, right? And obviously, you know, your firm you tilt away from you know beta and index. But the point is that like you know because we've got thousands of like portfolios that we manage, um, you know, and we when we inherit portfolios from financial advisors, it's still very tech growth heavy, tech growth heavy, a lot of like index beta type ETFs in there. So. What we told people is like, look, you know, if we think this inflation cycle is going to work the way we we thought it would, and if interest rates would rise the way we thought it would, although it wound up being a little bit more aggressive and convexity to the upside, like we, we think you should underweight tech and growth and have more exposure to, you know, financials, energy, material stocks. You know, these stocks are so cheap. I mean, they've been underowned for the last 10 years. I always view like, you know, these 10-year cycles. So in the late 90s, it was all about internet, tech. Then you had the dot-com bubble. Then for the next 10 years, all people wanted to own was energy, banks, emerging markets. Then that blew up. And then from 2010 to 2020, it was back to tech, you know, crypto. So I just think this, you know, last year, even a little bit before, you know, 2020 in, in the last in Q4. So between Q4 of 2020, you know, for the next few years, I think there is going to be this rotation into these four sectors um, because of this, you know, new steady state in Fed funds. Um, so our fund, and I know we're not going to mention tickers, but our, we only give you exposure to financials, energy, materials, industrials, you know, the aggregated PE ratio of this basket of stocks globally is eight. So it's still in that value times trade. earnings. I mean, the S&P is now 17 times earnings. There's questions about S&P earnings. Uh, fascinating. I, I don't know if you saw a piece I did this week uh, and on Twitter at the end of last year. S&P has its annual growth value rebalance. And it, it's interesting. In some of the growth factors S&P put, they have momentum as one of their growth factors. And so you had some fascinating trades that energy went from being, and I think it's still the cheapest sector in the market, if you look at any traditional valuation metric, cheapest sector. They removed it almost entirely from the value indexes in S&P and put it in growth. The pure growth index from S&P went from over a third in tech to less than 15% in tech, and it went to over a third in energy. Energy is the new growth, John, <laughs> according to S&P. What do you think? Well, I, it's funny because we tell people like, Okay, our fund, uh, you know, we call it value because that's what everyone understands. But, you know, if we look at the stocks and how our stocks are growing versus the market, I mean, we could even actually, you know, paint the picture that this is a growth-oriented sector fund. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, now Facebook is back to being a deep value stock and ExxonMobil is a super energy growth stock. So, that's why, like, you know, I feel like um, you have to be careful with ETFs and the rebalancing of them. Yes. I mean, it is interesting. The, the S&P style family, uh, you go to my blog, Wisdom Tree, or on my Twitter, uh, you'll find some of this. It, it was very counterintuitive. And I think, well, I, I wonder if S&P will think about the methodology a little bit, because there's, there's some, definitely some strange, strange things happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so APE uh, is... Is that how much of that is driven from energy, or is it really across all the sectors in that inflation-oriented theme? 
materials, financials, industrials? Is, do you like them equally? Do you is how how do you think about those? Okay, so the the fund is a microcosm of of actually how we actually manage money too, which is we we want to be diversified across, you know, stocks and and other commodity equities, physical commodities, you know, tips and other kind of, you know, uh, inflation sensitive you know asset classes. So. Um, you know, it is a multi-asset ETF. It's got currently right now about 70% in, in pure equities, let's say, um, you know, 10, 15% commodities. And those commodities are tilted more towards agricultural, precious metals, less on energy. And then, you know, the tail is focused on like, you know, fixed income type uh, inflation sensitive assets. So, and the idea, Jeremy, is that like inflation is such a highly nuanced area. Like, I don't think you can buy like a low cost, you know, you know, ETF issuers products to play inflation like I think you want to have skilled kind of managers and um, you know like we haven't had inflation in 20 years so most advisors are just still kind of saying like hey you know just we're just explaining to him so we say like look five ten percent of your portfolio in this fund that we manage can help you offset the tech duration growth risk that's kind of deflationary if you think about it. Plus, if you incorporate like the nominal bond exposure. So our fund last year, you know, was actually up, um, you know, 4%. You know, SP was down 20, you know, bonds were down 10, 15, whatever the number was. But, you know, we're pleasantly surprised past performance on a dig of future results. But like, it just shows you the buyer strike and this like, you know, rotation back into fundamentals. And I think like that's what you know, last year, this year, and the next few years is like, we're done with this momentum, QE-induced liquidity, super cycle, and beta, and, you know, you know, like, now it's, like, back to fundamentals. So, like, the fact that, like, our, you know, we feel like the the floor is, um, like, you know, AP ratio, right? you've got less, yeah. you know, risk on the downside. I That theme of AP is something that, that definitely really attracts me. I mean, value, I think, is... It could be a continued theme for this market. I don't think when you have this massive growth to value rotation, it's like a one and done trade. So I think it's going to be, continue to be a very interesting portfolio. I, I want to keep talking about commodities and roles of that. But we have John Davi of Astoria Portfolio Advisors here on Wharton's campus. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, behind the markets. Uh, and John, so your top 10 ideas had more bonds and alternatives than equities. What is that saying? <laughs> well, it's a reflection of our current views on stocks, um, you know, relative to other asset classes. And what we've been telling, you know, our clients is that, you know, if the terminal rate right now is, you know, for risk-free, you know, it really does change, you know, how you should think about, you know, stocks versus bonds versus, you know, every asset class out there. So, um, you know, it kind of sounds boring, but one of our top ideas at the moment is just buying, you know, four percent, you know, T-bills, you know, over the next, you know, couple months. Um, I know it doesn't make for a lot of good press or clickbait, but, you know, I, I just view that like, you know, stocks are in this like really difficult period while they're being cheap. But, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty, you know, with recessions and this looming earnings uh, recession. So, um, you know, we have more bonds ETFs out there now than we've ever had. So, uh, and I, I just clarify all this with, you know, this is, again, we don't have this massive view that we're going to have a recession and it's going to be some major 20, 25% downturn in the S&P, but there's a lot of risk out there. And, you know, with the Fed being so kind of hawkish and, you know, wanted to kind of keep the pedal to the metal, we just think you should clip coupons. So owning like, you know, very short dated treasuries make a lot of sense. Uh, we've got some back end of the yield uh, treasury curve as a hedge, you know, 20 year treasury ETFs as well. Um, you know, we just think you should be clipping coupons. So there's these ETS that'll give you exposure to, you know, two-year corporate bonds, you know, laddered, um, you know, same thing with the muni bond complex too. So, Yeah, it went from a narrative of there is no alternative. You had to be in stocks because you, you yield were at zero to now, you know, the new narrative, there is real, <laughs> real, real alternatives. Uh, and you're reflecting that with a few different items in your top 10 list. Um, but it, and, and beyond bonds, so there's sort of short duration bonds, long duration bonds, some unis and corporates, those were a few different ideas. You also do think of alternatives as, as part of this. How do you think about alternatives generally? What are the types of alternatives uh, that you made part of your, your top 10 list here? So we've always felt like 
you know, there's a couple things that we want to do for advisors. One is we want to give them, you know, a, a return per unit of risk that's, you know, manageable and that works across, you know, varying different macro macroeconomic cycles. You know, for a couple of years, you know, when we were in this big bull market, I mean, there were things that we saw that were just very, very unusual relative to history, right? When when Fed funds was pegged at zero, you started seeing things like, you know, people buying high yield bonds at 2%, right? When, you know, when I started my career, it was 13%. I mean, there was all this wacky behavior. I kind of put crypto in that bucket too. And I don't have positive bullish views on crypto, but there's just a lot of wonky behavior, like different kind of risk um, sentiment things that I saw that didn't make too much sense. So from our standpoint, when we're in this like, you know, Cape Shiller PE ratios at, you know, multi-decade highs, we said, look, we want to use alternatives that are inversely correlated because when the market does turn and a lot of people pushed us back because they thought that the, you know, the, the, you know, this bull market was going to last forever and it didn't like, as it always does eventually end. We wanted to use inversely correlated. So specifically we wanted alternatives that had either like negative correlation to the S&P or to the Lehman Ag index or very, very low. So that would be things like, you know, merger arbitrage, gold, gold equities, long, short market neutral, like anti-beta kind of strategies. Now that we had this DEFCOM 5 moment in, in, in equities, you know, we've had actually two of them, right? We had, you know, March 2020 down 40%, last year down 20 Like, you know, these kind of 100-year storms have been happening more and more often. And again, I don't think it'll happen again the third time within a span of like two, three years. But um, so all, all, all our alternative alternatives are starting to change in a sense that like we don't need them to be massively inversely correlated, but now we're willing to look at alternatives that provide you return but like lower risk. So there's you know some interesting ETFs out there that can give you that type of exposure. Uh, I know we can't mention tickers per se, but you know there's a well documented kind of night effect where. Uh, and this, I remember being on the trading floor, you know, my prior firms where we used to look at this, where it, it makes sense, right? S&P, you know, kind of goes up over time, um, be, you know, bull markets do end. But, you know, in general, we all know that, like, you know, S&P and, and equities do rally over a long period, you know, stocks for the long run, right? <laughs> Thanks to you and, and Siegel. But, you know, there is this effect where during the day, markets do have risk aversion because people delever. You know, economic data point comes out, uh, Fed speaks, you know, an M&A announcement comes out. So this kind of overnight effect tends to work well because you get the exposure in the night session, which historically has had a higher sharp ratio than the day sessions. So that's one of the alternatives we have on our list. Yeah, and Bruce Levine, my former boss, uh, is one of your board members uh, and has been on our show uh, with you before. So uh, Bruce Levine had, had, had founded Nightshares. And so if people want to look, listen back to some of our Behind the Markets podcasts and, and, and look at Bruce, uh, you can find more about the Nightshares strategies there. Um, let's talk, well, sticking with alternatives, uh, it's interesting you consider the Nightshares an alternative equity it's sort of an interesting play it has some equity beta but but obviously a different type very different than your traditional equity beta uh let's talk a little bit more about commodities we 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 alluded to you know your inflation oriented strategy but how are you what what types of commodities do you like today uh this has been a good start of the year for gold um as one of the kickoffs of the year but how do you think about the various commodities you have three different commodity ideas in your your top 10 list Okay, so gold, um, and we have had that as one of our liquid alts that have had low correlation to stocks, which they have over time, right? And we're talking about, you know, decades worth of, you know, correlation data. Um, you know, what I would say with gold specifically now, as the dollar weakens, obviously that's bullish for gold. Um, I think crypto blowing up is positive for gold. I think gold, you know, kind of had um, a headwind when crypto kept on going up, you know, thousands of percent a year because hey, let's just buy that. Um, but that's really risk on, right? Like crypto is like levered risk on like all throughout the day and night. Um, you know, gold for me, like the fact that it's rallying when you have positive real rates and, and those real rates have been going much higher. I mean, that is very, very bullish for the asset class. Obviously, yields falling today. Gold is having a very good day. But, you know, the reality is that like you can say whatever you want to paint a good picture, but you know, when the recession risk rises, gold rallies, right? So there's all these indicators we look at, you look at, 
you know, Siegel talks about on this show, but, you know, the, the macro data, you know, has been getting worse. Um, you know, earnings recession risks loom. So gold typically sniffs out the recession, and I think it's sniffing it out now. So we, we use a precious metals ETF just because we want to spread the risk across, you know, silver, you know, platinum, platinum, but that's one of the ETFs we like. So we, we like precious metals more so than, let's say, energy and oil because obviously you, you see oil – you know, top ticked at like 125 in July of, of last year. You know, it seems like gold owes, you know, peaks in the July 4th driving season, driving week, because um, everyone goes in a car and drives. And then, you know, now it's down to 75, you know, maybe plus or minus $5, wherever wherever it is, you know, today, yesterday. But the, the reality is that when you have a recession, oil is going to go down. So less bullish on, on, on crude oil, um, and then I would say more positive on agricultural commodity. And I was explaining to you before the show that, like, you know, carton of eggs is, you know, double what it was two years ago. Price of, you know, milk, bread. I mean, you know, I just think agricultural commodities can stay sticky for longer. Plus, you have this whole Russia-Ukraine risk. And Ukraine was such a big, you know, component of the agricultural trade. So as long as that war goes on, I think agricultural commodities can, can stick, uh, be, you know, higher for longer. Do you think people where where do you think people are positioning commodities? I mean, they were such a bad place for the decades, almost like value versus growth. Though. But yeah, are people properly sized in in portfolios? No, they're not. I mean, every every portfolio we inherit, Jeremy, just has you know beta, cheap, you know growth, um, tech, you know nominal bonds, you know. And what we we it's funny we wrote a report like four years ago saying you know if you're if your portfolio doesn't have commodities, it's misallocated. And this was like when you had no inflation. And, you know, we just always want to have inflation insurance. So in, in fairness to us, we've actually owned some of these commodities really since our firm was incepted in 2017. So again, like you just want to have inflation insurance. So I think, you know, commodities have a valuable place. Last year was kind of a no-brainer in terms of like, you know, you were getting a net positive carry for owning the commodity complex. This year, you know, not as much, but, um, you know, I think there's a long way to go. The, the, you know, the ultimate indicator is like you go to a conference, you know, you look at a client's portfolio. I mean, there's no commodities panel, like there's no commodities ETFs in people's portfolios. That's starting to change a little bit. Um, but I think, you, you know, if you looked at like, I don't know if it was last year or before, when people started talking about inflation, you had all this money going into tips and tips – aren't the great, the best inflation hedge. Um, so so I, I think we have a long, I, I just think you should look at inflation insurance, inflation ETFs and inflation commodities as like insurance on inflation. So you kind of have your car insurance, your house insurance, you leave your, your house and drive your car, you have to have legally, you know, car insurance, house insurance. Like we just think your portfolio should have inflation insurance because there's periods of time where they go up, they go down, but it's hard to time, so you want to just own it, uh, a small allocation towards it. Yeah, and th that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and and particularly the energy sector today also feels like one of those risks to inflation generally that maybe there's more geopolitics, maybe the China reopening, who knows what are, could be energy positive, uh, that it could be a risk to the stocks and bonds. And, to, you know, they, they're, it was one of the few outlier sectors. You don't want to draw too much from that last year, but... That, that there is something to it, and it's also one of the cheapest sectors in the yeah. market. And, you know, in my career, like, I remember seeing, like, uh, Exxon is one of the top five stocks, and, you know, I forgot if it was the S&P or Acqui, but, you know, I remember also seeing, like, Gazprom, Lukoil, Petrobras being a top 10 stock in Acqui, and, you know, and then, like, f four or five years ago, you know, Exxon Mobil was, like, the 250 largest stock in the index. Now it's back up to top 10, like... You know, you just see these extreme moves in people's like, um, you know, how they view kind of energy sector. So m my concern with energy is that it's like unilaterally like the top sector, most big sell side research firms. So I'm a little scared about that. You know, it's I think it's more owned now, but yes, it is definitely still lower PE ratio. So we just have to be mindful of that um, to some degree. We're talking with John Davi of Astoria Portfolio Advisors about his top 10 ETFs for 2023. Uh, John, you also, uh, we've talked about all the things besides equity so far. Let's get into some of the equity positions. Uh, I don't know if it, if it in, in ranked order, but your top, uh, your top equity idea on the list was defensive 
equities, uh, maybe sort of generally <laughs> consistent with having the least amount of equities you've had, but talk about how you're positioning for defensive equities. What, what's, what's the play here? So the way we're uh, positioning our our models and our portfolios now is, is, you know, kind of get more neutral to the benchmark, not take, you know, kind of massive risk per se. Um, you know, our background, again, being, you know, kind of institutional quants, like we do want to diversify our portfolio across factors. So, you know, we, we love the quality factor because that's, you know, one of these factors that's persistent, pervasive, robust. Um, you know, MinVol is, is another factor uh, that we have in our portfolios. It's on our list. You know, dividends is, is a, another kind of, you know, factor that we tend to like, you know, value as well. So, you know, it, it, some of these ETFs you see on my list, you know, their PE ratios aren't like, you know, like super low, like we, what we've been talking about, like energy sector or inflation ETF in terms of valuation. But what typically happens at this point in the cycle is like things like defensive equities, whether it's utilities, staples, you know, healthcare, you know, minval type stocks. They're kind of expensive, like fair value, let's say, but they, they typically get more expensive before the recession. So this kind of list that I have here, whether it's the MinVal factor or these dividend ETFs, um, you know, like that's the playbook is to own them. And then when the recession hits, then you, you would look to rotate out of that into, you know, early cycle stocks, you know, as, as we get past the recession, as we get into like a new economic cycle so definitely having like the least number of equity ETF ideas and having like dividends, minball, um, you know, reflects our view on equities. One other interesting ETF is um, an ETF that's kind of, you know, focused on like free cash flow stocks. And, uh, you know, I, I think that why that's on the list is that it kind of does what we like at Astoria, which is like, you know, concentrated, you know, even our fund only has, you know, 50 securities, 55 securities. You know, so this ETF has just 100 equally weighted, so it kind of takes advantage of, like, the size premium. So, you know, we like that. Obviously, right now, you know, free cash flow stocks, you know, is, is being rewarded well. So that ETF, you know, did well last year relative to the market. Uh, obviously, garnered a lot of inflows. So, um, you know, definitely more kind of risk off, let's say, compared to, like, you know, super growth heavy, you know, super high octane momentum uh, strategies. The opposite, the cash, the cash cows type thing being the opposite of unprofitable tech is, is where you're going there. Yeah. And, and it's nice to know that the market's going back to fundamentals and looking at like, okay, how much did you make last year? We're going to reward you based on that. I mean, there were some really wonky things, as I said, you know, early in the show, like things just really crazy risk behavior, like in unprofitable tech, like we call them like hopes and dream stocks and, and they went up so much higher than we thought they would ever go up. Same thing with crypto too. Um, but you know, those things never last. Right. And it, it kind of reminded us so much of like the internet bubble, the tech bubble. Uh, like, you know, I, I started as an analyst in, in 98 and like, you know, they were stocks going up thousands of percent and they had no single cash flow, Right. And like, and people were convinced that these companies were going to take over the world and some of them did, right? But like there were hundreds, if not thousands, of these internet stocks that had they were unprofitable. Um, but ten lasted, right? And some of those ten did exceptionally well, right? Amazon, you know, Google, and, and stuff like that. So I think that's kind of why we learned that, like, you know, you have to pay pay attention to fundamentals. Now, one of your ideas uh, you mentioned in in the construction of one of these that tends to be equally weighted and, and going to size. But one of your specific top ideas was mid cap uh, quality. Talk about the case for mid cap versus large cap today, uh, and and sort of then the the quality factor within within mid caps. So so what's interesting is that like when I first started, um, you know, small caps are trading at a premium to large caps, right? Because they grow faster. Um, and, you know, you'd pay a higher multiple for faster growing companies, right? And then we had this period, you know, the tech era where the P multiples were trading at a much higher premium than small cap stocks. So, you know, we, we feel like there's still a lot of concentration risk in the large cap index beta space. So we like kind of taking a view and going down the micro, down the mark cap range and using kind of mid cap stocks and then, you know, just the way, like, you know, the index provider looks at, like, 
companies, you know, four quarters of net positive earnings. You know, you, your firm obviously does something very similar in terms of how you weight your stocks, which, you know, we like as well. Um, so, you know, quality is one of these factors, you know, that's, you know, as I mentioned, like persistent, pervasive, robust, it gets rewarded throughout time. So if you look at like the mid cap quality TF versus just the pure beta mid cap, like it has outperformed, you know, on a one, three, five, 10 year basis. And it makes sense, right? Because, you know, you should be rewarded if you're producing cash flows, if you have like solid ROE, ROA, if you've got good management, if you reward shareholders. Yep. So it's nice to see, you know, that kind of factor being, you know, rewarded um, over time. Yeah. And, and I, I do uh, a daily dashboard on, on our site. We have a, a page uh, called On the Markets and it has all sorts of different links. Uh, one of the things we show valuations, you know, on a daily basis, and we've been talking about this mid-cap and small-cap valuation discount for a little bit of time, but uh, I fully agree. I mean, the S&P 400, is, which is, they have some profits requirements to get into the S&P family, is 14 times versus 17 times for the S&P. And even the, you know, the small-cap set, 13 to 14 times against their three points lower than the S&P 500 in, in a time. They could say people are worried about recession and maybe the mid and small caps are technically more cyclical um, or that's the kind of reputation of that. But it'll be interesting with tech. You know, tech was un, unquestioned for so long and now there's some questions <laughs> about big tech. Yeah, and, and like, you know, mid cap is not like 20% of our models, right? It's It's a smaller allocation, but again, it's meant to kind of diversify to own a portfolio of factors because, you know, all the research that, you know, we've read, we've done, you know, shows like when you own a portfolio of factors, you know, historically you can get higher up on the fresh frontier, right? So better investment outcome for clients, um, more diversification, you know, uh, higher sharp ratio. So, you know, unfortunately, we're just in this period right now where you're being rewarded, you know, for having lower multiples, you know, higher cash flows. So. Final 30 seconds. Where do you want people, if, again, just to remind people if they liked what they heard here, where can they find more on the top 10 ETF list from Astoria or any other things about uh, Astoria you want to highlight? Last sure, 30 seconds. Sure. AstoriaAdvisors.com or uh, on Twitter at AstoriaAdvisors. This has been a, a, an excellent conversation. John has been a repeat friend and guest of Behind the Markets, and it's great to be our first guest back in the studio, even three years an into honor. it. Yeah, uh, it was thanks an honor. For, thanks for coming to Wharton. Dion, thanks for being here, managing the soundboard. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.